0: Hey there, thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. We are in the second week of a series that has really, for me, has come out of our time of looking at the blueprint that God has for revival. And what what I've realized as we look at the crisis and the uncertainty that we're living in right now is that what we need is we need the manifestation of the presence of Jesus as our King and we need the benefits of His kingdom to manifest in our church, in our community and in our personal lives. And so When we ask, Lord, let your kingdom come, we have to begin to know what we're asking for. We have to begin to know, in many ways, how is his kingdom and that which is true of heaven, how is it received for ourselves, for our church, for our families, for our community? So I want to look at today that the king is received... When his words are received. When we begin to realize that we're not just praying to God, but we're hearing from God. So I want to take us to a passage in Acts chapter 3, where the Apostle Peter is explaining about the kingdom, and about the the aspect of Christ the King speaking to us, and God speaking through Christ. So here's this reading from Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, So what we have here in Peter's, in, in Peter's sermon, as he's explaining Jesus being the very fulfillment of all of the prophecies of God and all the promises of God, is he's explaining really what it means when we begin to receive both the king and the kingdom. What, is it, what does it look like for the people of God to decide We need the benefits of the kingdom. We need the presence of the kingdom. We need what is true here on earth to look like what is true in heaven. And that means that there has to be a sense of the presence of the king himself. And so Peter makes it really clear. He says, we have a God who speaks and and all of us, all of us need a God who speaks. Now, There are a lot of people that I meet who believe in God, and there are a lot of people who believe in God who tell me that they pray. But I also find that there are a lot of people who have never themselves felt like they hear from God. So anybody can speak, even to an imaginary God, or to a God of their own fantasy or their own making. But what we need is we need a God who speaks to us. And here in the Scriptures, what Peter is saying is that God doesn't just speak in some random, unconnected way, but that God has spoken fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when you really come to know and become intimate with the Lord Jesus Christ, you become intimate with His words and His words have an effect on you. But I'm asking for more than just that you would be a good Bible student, that you would just be a person who has information and knowledge of the scriptures. I'm asking that you would know specifically how Jesus speaks and how he speaks to you, and that you would have heard his voice. He says, My sheep hear my voice. They know me, he says, and I know them, and they follow me. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for something that's a bit more radical than just being good students. We're looking for people who are intimate with the word of Jesus, intimate with the voice of Jesus, and who are willing to follow him no matter what he asks of them. And so, you know, this isn't just sort of a consciousness of God, but this is a very structured, real relationship between God and another person, between God and you. And and what what we're talking about is that he has communicated in such a way that he's asking you to accept what he has communicated, to rely on it, and then to feed your soul, to feed your spirit on the truth that he has communicated. This, in a sense, you could say that the Bible is all about God's talk, what God has to say. Even when, when the Lord Jesus Christ was being baptized, it was so interesting that the Father says about Jesus that we are to listen to Him. He says, this is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. And Jesus Himself made this very clear when He said, why do you call Me Lord? Lord means that I'm your Master. You're My servant. You're My follower. I'm your leader. And He said to Him, why do you call Me Lord, Lord, and you do not what I say? You know what He means when He says... You do not what I say. He's meaning you do not listen. You are not listening. Father says that's the most important thing. Here's my beloved Son. Listen to Him. The Son says it's the most important thing. Why do you call me Lord, but you don't listen to what I say? In many ways, we're really getting at why so many of us struggle. It's not because we don't read our Bibles. It's probably not because we don't pray, but it's because we do not listen. And it's interesting, we struggle with this in all relationships. We struggle this, with this if we're, if we're parents listening to our children, if we're children listening to our parents. We have difficulty if we're spouses listening to our spouse. I cannot tell you the number of times that my wife has spoken to me and said, you never listened to me. And what she really means is, it isn't that I didn't hear what she had to say, But that I hadn't entered in, that I hadn't engaged, I hadn't changed my mind. She especially hated it in the early days of our marriage where I only listened so I could argue with her. So that I had more points in order to to defend myself or to attack her viewpoint. See, that's not listening. That is not putting yourself in a position where even the communication that someone else has for you is going to have any benefit for you because you're either going to use it to attack or to avoid or to defend. And so the Lord is saying, why do you have such a resistance to listening to me? You see, you cannot experience the presence of the King and we will not experience the benefits of the Kingdom if there isn't A significant percentage of us in a community, in a church, who have devoted ourselves to listening to what the Lord has to say and to every situation. Why is this listening so important? Well, I'm going to divide it up into three things that come from Peter's sermon. One is that it's very clear that because of what the prophets have to say, that Jesus is the prophet of God who brings the truth. But Jesus himself said he was more than just the prophet of God. Jesus says he is the truth. And then the last thing we want to look at is how Jesus heals us with the truth. So let's start with Jesus brings us truth. In this passage, Peter is quoting Moses and the prophecy that Moses made. How the Lord God would raise up for, for the people, for God's people, you raise up a prophet who would compare to Moses, who would be like Moses before the people of God. And here's what Moses said. When you see that prophet, when you hear that prophet, he says you, will, you should listen to him. You need to listen to him in whatever he tells you. Now this is a, really, this is a, this is a wonderful insight about how you listen to the words of Jesus. You see, the the whole meaning of prophet comes from a a compound Greek word, profaming. And the word pro means for or before uh, in this case. And then faming means to speak for. So the idea here is that you are coming before others in order to speak for another. And many of us get too caught up in the, the idea of prophecy being a foretelling of the future. When in reality, that's, that's only a peripheral function of the prophet. The main function is to speak for someone else, to stand before individuals or a group and to speak the words of someone else. And so Jesus here is being described by Moses and Moses said, Jesus will be like me. Well, one of the places where we see The ministry of Moses is in Exodus 7. You see, Moses didn't see himself as a speaker, but Moses was the one who received the words from God. He imparted those words to Aaron. So what we see is that Moses is standing, and the standing before Pharaoh is Moses' standing, not Aaron's. But the one who speaks, who speaks for Moses, and speaks the words that Moses gave him was his brother Aaron. And the Bible says this, God says, Moses, you will be as God to Pharaoh. And then Aaron will be as Moses to Pharaoh. So the mo- words that Aaron spoke, he was the profanity. The words that he spoke, he spoke for Moses. But the very words that Moses spoke were the words of God. And this is how it works. There's a truth. That comes forth in the prophetic where it is the words and the truth of God and the one who brings that truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there are other views of truth in our world that are not nearly so absolute. One of the truths that many people believe is that of course there is no God and that the only thing that you can actually trust is discerned or or decided by the meaning that you give to it, and and in the scientific community, there's not really a belief in truth, but there is a belief in facts. Truth, in a way, is an interpretation, a a, a, a an understanding of how all the facts fit together, and 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 in a way, when you're dealing with this kind of version of the truth, you don't really see them as fitting together. As a matter of fact, one of the leading philosophers in the realm of of kind of a secular knowledge was an English philosopher by the name of Bertrand Russell. And he called human beings a random collocation of atoms. In other words, In other words, there there is no discernible meaning. There is no discernible purpose. Everything is just random. And that you need to embrace the fact that there is no meaning to this life. This this life that you have is all that there is. This world that we live in is all that there is. And you have to decide how to make peace with the utter and complete randomness of everything, which, which... Let me just tell you what it means. It means that suffering has no meaning. Sacrifice has no meaning. Because if everything is random, there's no meaning, there's no purpose. And this is all that there is, and there is no more. So a lot of times, people are not as courageous as Bertrand Russell. And though they believed in the randomness of life, and that there is no divine design or no divine purpose. Most people kind of still say things like, everything has a reason, or everything has a purpose, or I'm going to find some kind of meaning. But I started watching a, a show called Little Voice. And it's not the easiest of shows to watch, and it's, it's not the cleanest of shows to watch, but it, it it has been fascinating because it's the journey of a young woman who wants to be a musician, who wants to be a singer in New York City and wants her music and, and her message from her music to get out and to be shared. But as she encounters one setback after another, her explanation to people who are going through things, her explanation is very clear. She says, everything is random. Nothing has any real meaning. So she's actually this you know, this popular kind of television show, character in that show, basically voicing the philosophy of uh, Bertrand Russell. But she doesn't have the same courage that Russell had, in a way, because she still is trying to succeed in her music. She's still trying to find meaning in her music and through her music and to portray meaning in her music. And when her music is not accepted and when her voice... Is not, you know, is not received, she's destroyed by it. Which is absolutely irrational, friends, because if everything's random and nothing has meaning, how in the world can you be destroyed by anything? Because nothing means anything. So on the one hand, she's saying everything is random, but she's living as if there is a meaning to be found. Well, that's one view of truth, and it's very hard for people actually to be very consistent with that view of the truth. But there's another view, and this is also very common, and that is that all of us are little gods. And it's impossible, in a way, for truth to be contained by words or to be revealed by words. So we're all these little gods, and you just have to get in touch with the divinity in yourself. You have to come to know yourself. There is no truth outside of you. There's only your subjective experience and nothing else matters. And one of the issues with this view of truth is that I have to have, you have to have, unlimited freedom and nothing can restrict me and nothing can limit me because if I have unlimited freedom, then I can find myself, I can explore reality and I can find some kind of meaning to this life. And so we begin to see all of these people who are demanding an unlimited, unchecked freedom. Now, these two reviews in some ways seem very at odds with one another. The one says everything's random. You know, there's no meaning whatsoever. Everything is is accidental. It's all, you know, it's all void of meaning. And the other one says, well, everything is inside of you and everything is subjective, but there is some kind of truth. You just have to have enough freedom to find it. And though these two seem so opposite, they have a very similar core. And the core is this. There is no one out there to obey. You should not submit to anything outside of yourself. Rid yourself of any need to submit to the truth. You are your own prophet. No one else, no other prophet, has words that you have to obey. Now, obviously, I disagree with all of these views. But on a, just a very personal level, if I am my own prophet and I rid myself of the need to submit to any truth outside of myself, I am submitting to the person who has hurt me more than anybody else. I am submitting to the person who has disappointed me more than anybody else. If I am my own truth and I am my own prophet, I am my own worst enemy. And so, friends, as I look at these these underlying meanings of the way that people look at truth and the way they look at life, do you not see that these are incredibly destructive? Whether it is the top scientist or it is a a wonderful young woman trying to have her voice be heard in her music and her songs or, or if it's a person who's who's trying to understand their own sexual brokenness or their difficulties or whatever it might be, the fact that you try to pursue it without a truth that's outside of yourself is only dangerous to yourself and only destructive. So what we have in the Bible is the Bible says there's truth. Not only is there truth to submit to, but there's a prophet and his name is Jesus. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up from you a prophet. He's speaking about Jesus. He says, you shall listen to Him. And the danger of not finding the voice of Jesus to be the prophet to your soul and to your life, Moses said, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people, shall be cut off from the people not listening to the truth, not listening to Jesus, the prophet of truth, cuts you off from the truth and it is destructive to your life. So much so that the opposite of what Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Moses is saying if you do not know the truth, not only will you not be free, you will be destroyed by the opposite of the truth. So the truth, according to the Scriptures, is always outside of you and must be brought into your life. The truth is not you, but it must be received by you and it must be believed and depended on and applied by you. Now, if you don't, it still will be true, no matter what. So Paul believed this. Paul believed that truth had content. He believed that there was was a, a... a paradigm of truth. There was a, a, a parameter of truth, so much so that in Galatians chapter 1, he really says something pretty, pretty uh, uh, blunt. Now, the, the Bible translators are often very polite when Paul is not necessarily as polite as the translators are. Here's what he says If even an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be under a curse, a divine curse. As we said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be under a curse. I mean, let's, just, let's put it pretty bluntly. Let that angel be damned, he says, if he changes even a little bit of the content. Even an angel. He says, let me or any preacher or any teacher be damned if the truth is changed. Paul's basically saying a truth is not merely the facts that you can test by your senses, nor is it a subjective reality that you make up to give your meaningless life meaning. So Jesus brings the truth. He's the prophet to be listened to. He speaks the Word of God. But He's more than that. Jesus is the truth. Here in Acts 3.18, Peter says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. And then he says, All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. What are they saying here? They're saying the same thing that Hebrews 3 says. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now what? But in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son. You understand, all those prophecies, all that prophetic message, all pointed to Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus. So much so that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth isn't a set of facts that you decide are true for you. The truth is a person. Jesus does not just bring us truth. He is the truth. He doesn't just tell us how to live. He is the life. He doesn't just give us God's Word. He is the Word. Now I know what I'm about to do is to take you into some philosophical journey here, but I think it's worth it. And besides, I have the microphone, so you have to listen. So John, when he's talking about Jesus as the truth, He uses a Greek word. The word word for word in in John the first chapter is the word logos. And that word has a powerful background and meaning. The Greek philosophers for for years and years as they they studied and they looked at life and they looked at all the aspects of life said, said there has to be a unifying element. There has to be a unifying factor or meaning behind all of life. And that unifying meaning that brought everything together and made it make sense and made it fit, they called the logos. And basically they were saying, we see what we see life, we see human beings, we see relationships, we see the earth, we see all of these things. But what's behind all that, they said. What's the meaning of life? What's the logos? And in their mind, it was the one thing that everything we're about is moving towards. See, They didn't think life was random. They didn't think we were an accident. They didn't think that this was all that there was. But they could not discern from the natural world what the meaning behind it all was. So they were searching for the logos. But by the time Jesus was born, the Greeks had basically given up. And they had stopped looking. They just said, we can't find it. We believe it's there, but we can't find it. Now, it's interesting to me in terms of philosophy. By the days of Jesus' birth, the Greeks had boiled down philosophy to basically... There were more than this, but they were basically mostly either Stoics or they were Epicureans. And these two philosophies still exist today because without the Logos, without a deep sense of meaning, you still have to be able to handle life and you still have to be able to live. And so the Stoics basically said the best way to go through life is to find a way to not be disturbed either by the highs of life or the lows of life, to be a person who is immovable. And the Epicureans looked at life and said, well, if you have excess, then it leads to destruction. It leads to difficulty. So they they rejected hedonism, which was the excess of desire and the excess of the passions. But the Epicureans said, if we have moderation." Then we can can eat and taste the fullness of the flavor. We can drink good wines, but not get drunk. And so their idea was, let's sample it. Let's, Let's taste it. Let's have an explosion of flavor. But let's never go to excess. And so that was where they had come down to. They basically had figured out more or less techniques for how to live their lives without the Logos. And so here John is picking up this Greek philosophy and reveals that everything the Greek philosophers have been looking for is found in Jesus. He is the meaning behind everything. So do you not see, both in the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John, when it comes to our King, the Lord Jesus, they're saying, not only does Jesus bring the truth, He is the one spoken of, of all the prophets of God. But He is the truth because He's also the one who was sought by all the greatest Greek philosophers. They had given up because they couldn't deduce and they couldn't find the Logos because they didn't realize the Logos would be the very Son of God who was willing to become man and be born in a manger in Bethlehem. But more than that, that through His death, verse 18 says, that Jesus, because of His suffering, you see, it's not random. It has meaning. Jesus, because of His suffering, can wipe away every sin in your life. And He can bring the refreshment and life of God into anybody's life. Because He's the Logos. He's the truth. He's the meaning. And all all the truths find their place in Jesus. See, this is why the Christian faith can't just be an institution or a religion, friends. Because in the Christian faith is a dynamic power. The very Word of God, the truth Himself, a person transforms all the areas of our life by Jesus and for Jesus you were created. You never fully find the meaning of your life until you find who made you and what He made you for. Through Him and in Him you find not only you know, the idea of logos, but the idea of your an experience of your true meaning and purpose. Well, I get excited about him as my logos, but let's say you reject this or you meet people who are rejected. So what does it really mean when you say there is no truth, there is no absolute truth? Well, I mean, you have to be a little bit consistent here and realize that if there is no absolute truth, then... There's absolutely nothing you can say with any authority. And there's no stand that you can take that actually has any genuineness to it. Because if there is no absolute truth, you have absolutely nothing to say about anything. And yet, what is it when we see the violation of truth that why is it that we are so outraged? I watched twice in that first couple of days when George, George Floyd was being held down by that police officer. And everything in me, it just screamed, let him up. What are you doing? You see, why is there such outrage about such an injustice if there is no truth? It can only be protested if there's a objective standard to which we're appealing that says, that's wrong. And it's not wrong because I feel like it's wrong. It's wrong because it it applies to a standard that's outside of me that's true for all time, not just for now. Otherwise, I'm just objecting to my preferences. I'm just uh, objecting to things that have to do with my taste or my my style. But when something truly is unjust or when something is truly cruel, a use or misuse of authority to render a person helpless and powerless and dead, and it, and it angers us, it's because we know, whether we know it or not, we know that there's a standard that's outside of ourself that has been violated. One of the biggest things, and most people don't think about their philosophy too much, but let me tell you, if there is no truth, there is no such thing as heroism. There are no heroes if there is no standard by which we judge what is noble, what is pure, what is heroic. But we all know that there are heroes. I remember watching as people were coming out of the Twin Towers and they were running for their lives. And yet here were first responders. Here were emergency te- emergency personnel. Here were police officers. Here were firefighters. They weren't running from it. They were running to it. There's nobody that, that I can think of with any sense whatsoever that doesn't say that running into the catastrophe and running in to save people from a catastrophe there's no way you can say that is not heroic but why do we say it's heroic because we have a standard of nobility we have a standard of what is true and what is just there are heroes now one of my favorite heroes is a a man by the name of athanasius athanasius lived in the fourth century He had a very tumultuous life, but it was an incredibly devoted, dedicated life to Christ. He served the Lord. He was a champion of the truth even when he was unpopular, even when it cost him what was most important to him in many ways. During his ministry, even at the beginning of his ministry, a heresy had spread throughout the the Roman Catholic Church. It was put forth by a very popular bishop by the name of Arius. And he had many followers and many bishops, many powerful bishops were in his camp. And at times it looked like only Athanasius stood up to the popularity of Arius and all his bishops who followed him. Now Arius was, was incredibly you know, likable and, and, and people gravitated to his charisma, but Athanasius was very short in stature. He had a towering intellect, very smart, and he had a fiery and quick tongue. He could, he could debate and he could answer very well. And so because, I mean, I can just say it this way, because he was so formidable with the truth, Instead of critiquing the truth that he spoke, they mocked him as a person. Athanasius was African. Some historians have said he was, he was dark of skin. He was black. But because of his short stature, they would take both the color of his skin and they would take his, his height and they would mock him. Instead of dealing with the truth he was speaking, they used racial And they used prejudices against people who are not as tall as other people and they called him a black dwarf, some would say. And so they would try to, in a way, destroy him personally because they couldn't destroy the truth that he was teaching and that he was preaching. What we know for certain about Athanasius is he was exiled five times for his his stand on the truth. In his lifetime, these, these exiles added up to about 20 years, about a quarter of his life. Through his steadfastness, even when he had no popularity, even when they were mocking him, the church came to finally see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, that he has exactly the same substance and essence as the Father. Therefore, and thereby the the declaration came that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in being and in eternality. And though Athanasius did not write what is a part of the church's creed, the Nicene Creed, he was its chief champion. And he he came directly against and was able to argue against Arius. Because Arius wanted the church to diminish Christ. He wanted the church to demote Christ. He wanted Christ to be known as an exalted creature, but that he was always less than God, that he was not God himself. And so Athanasius stood against that. He died in 373 AD, and the the epithet that's uh, on his tombstone is very famous because it captures his life, his ministry. It read simply, Athanasius Contra Mundum. And that means Athanasius against the world. See, this great Christian leader suffered several exiles during the embittered Arian controversy. But because of his steadfast profession of faith, no matter what it cost him personally, the church and the world was able to maintain the biblical truth of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, second person of the trinity the trinity unified as one but in three separate persons and we have athanasius to thank for that you see without truth and without truth to fight for then heroism is just an illusion now what i'm talking about with this truth again i'm talking about this true logos this true meaning And and the way we are as human beings is if we can't find the Logos, we'll make one up for ourselves. So our job becomes our meaning, our career, our family, our fame. We will have to make something that we invest in as our meaning, as our purpose, as our glory, as our Logos. So again, I go back to this television show, which fascinated me in so many ways because of what it revealed About the way that people design their own logos. She said everything was random. She said there is no such thing as the logos. And yet it was remarkable to me because her songs and her writing and her singing had to be truthful. She felt like a fake if she wasn't truthful. She had to be genuine. It had to come from the heart. So her songs, friends, had become these little logos. She had drive for her little logos. Not just a little voice, but her little logos. She found her meaning. She made her music ultimate. And what you see in the show is she needs this unlimited freedom and she knows all of her artistic friends and all of her people that are part of her community. They're like, we have to have this unlimited freedom. We can't have anybody prophesying to us. We can't have anybody limiting us. I've got to express myself. I've got to find myself and I have to fulfill my logos, even if it is nothing more than a a little logos. See, the problem here is that any finite logos that you have is going to crumble. Only Jesus as your logos will will not crumble. See, He doesn't just give the truth. He is the truth. And so He heals us when we begin to say, I will receive you as the truth. I will receive you as the truth. This is one of the things that a lot of people struggle with. And that is the idea of what is the purpose of the Logos? Well, the purpose of the truth is to bless you. And blessing here doesn't mean like you sneeze and I say God bless you in some kind of meaningless way. Blessing here is that idea of experiencing all the resources you need in order to live a life with utter fulfillment, deep satisfaction, and finding your true meaning. You see, what, what, what Peter is saying here is when Jesus sets you free from your wickedness, you find your true self. The wickedness is imposed on your true self, hides your true self, veils your true self, and when the truth comes, you separate from the wickedness And what is revealed and what is unveiled is your true self. You don't need unlimited freedom, which is really a lie anyway. What you need is the truth to set your true self free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it's funny because, see, people avoid God and they avoid his commandments and they avoid his truth because they're so afraid he's going to make you do something you don't want to do. Or He's going to take away from you something that you really, really want. Can I just say it this way? True freedom is obedience to your design. I've only gotten to do this one time of flying in a small aircraft. I've been a Christian a long time. I've been reading missionary stories since I was a teenager. I always wanted to fly in one of those missionary planes. And so one year, we got to do that in Uganda. We flew from, from Entebbe. We flew to, to Gulu in one of those small planes that only held about 10 people. And, and let me just tell you, it was, a, it was a glorious thing flying that plane. You had a sense of the speed in the air, and you could see so well, and, and I loved it. But I will tell you this. I was absolutely, absolutely, uh, realizing how important it was that those who maintained that plane, that those who designed that plane, that those who, who, who built that plane, that they were absolutely obedient to the design and were absolutely aware of gravity and force and speed and, and, and what that effect would have on the plane. Because you see, you can't have the glory of flying unless you're absolutely obedient to the design that overcomes gravity and overcomes friction and all of these things. It's wonderful to fly, and it feels like incredible freedom, but it's not free if it's not obedient to the design. Same is true. I remember uh, my father used to love to go fishing, and, and we would go into some rivers and bayous down in south Louisiana and south Mississippi. Let me tell you something. He didn't always take care of his motor on his boat, and we would get way out on a river, or we'd get way out in a bayou in a very kind of swampy looking place, and his motor would give out. Now, it was wonderful freedom to have that motor and speed along the water, but when that motor didn't work, it didn't work because he hadn't been obedient to the maintenance of that design. You've got to obey the designs. It's not a freedom to do whatever you want. It's freedom when you have obedience to what you were designed for. And think about it. Even if, if I were to give you absolute freedom, you are filled like me with conflicting desires. I mean, most of the time, as I've gotten into my sixties, I want to lose weight. I feel like I, I need to get uh, skinnier. I need to get healthier and all that that all that stuff. But I got to tell you, as we've gone through COVID nineteen and quarantine, I've wanted also to eat anything and everything I want. And most of those things have sugar in it and have carbs in it and all kinds of stuff. I want to lose weight, but I want to eat ice cream. And those two desires conflict with one another. And so what we have to do is to realize that we have a prophet. We have a truth. We have truth that will heal us. If instead of trying to uh, fulfill all our conflicting desires, we begin to realize that Jesus is listening to our liberating desires. And the logos is the meaning giver. He takes our desires and he says, that one's not good for you. That's not good for you. That will not get you to your ultimate destiny. See, what he, wants to, what he wants is to clarify what you were made for so that then what you really want is what you're really receiving because that's what you were designed for. That was what you were made for. I know I've given you a lot today, but I want to say this. And just close with this question. Have you realized there's a freedom of not being your own prophet, but listening to the prophet of God? Have you realized there's a freedom when Jesus isn't just, in a sense, a figure you know about, but he's the truth that you listen to? So that in your heart, you begin to pursue and obey the God who has spoken and who continues to speak. I think, I believe, That when enough of us say, Lord, speak, your servants are listening. The kingdom comes and the king is present. Would you receive this now? In Jesus' name, amen.